Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I may be stranded on a desert planet, but at least I have a podcast to keep me company. Well, that's good. We'd hate for you to be attacked by unconvincing plastic spears and not have something to listen to whilst that event was occurring. This week, we are diving into the Galileo 7 as we meander our way merrily through the first season of the original show. And as always, we're not doing it alone, so we have Joe with us this week. Say hello, Joe. Hello, Joe. Um, hi, everybody. I'm <laughs> glad that uh, uh, JG and Kev have invited me to take part in this conversation. Um, big Star Trek fan, so uh, looking forward to chatting about this episode. Fantastic. Well, we're very much looking forward to having you chat about this episode. Um, as we always do when we have a guest on the show, which is every episode, uh, we ask you what your kind of history with the show is and kind of how you came to Star Trek and, and what it means to you. So, uh, yeah, what's, what's your kind of history with Star Trek? Yeah, Star Trek's kind of a big part of my life, um, I would say. Um Going back to probably middle school, I think I was like 13 or so when I first started watching Star Trek. Um, I was a Voyager guy um, way back. Um, in oh, the- I love you already. You All right. <laughs> um, uh, I hope, hopefully I'm not, not spoiling too much by saying I was a Voyager guy um, uh, way back in the day, though. Um, I uh, That's what was on, right? So that's what I watched um, pretty much every week. I think I watched almost the entire series um, as it was aired. Um, maybe started around season two. I don't really remember. Um, but uh, watched that all the way through to the finale. Started with Enterprise uh, when that came on the air. And I kind of dabbled in the other shows as they came on. But Voyager was really like my home show. It felt like it's the first one you watch. So it's the one that felt most uh, comfortable to me for a while. It's a pretty comfortable show. Um, the uh, uh, It's still probably my favorite ship um, of, of them all. Um, but uh, after that, um, I fell off Enterprise a little bit um, in high school. I don't think I actually ended up finishing that series. Um, but I was super active in um, the uh, 3D like modeling and scale modeling worlds at the time for like sci-fi stuff. Um, and Star Trek was a big subject matter for, um, uh, for that. So um, kind of stayed in the world while not watching all that much of it um, for, for a while because it used to be hard to watch stuff like this. If you didn't have it on tape, um, mm-hmm. you kind of had to wait for it to be on TV. Um, after college, I really got way back into it again. The, um, the reboot movies came out, um, kind of got back into it in a big way. And then after my kids were born, um, I kind of did a full immersion back into the show where I watched a lot of what I hadn't watched before. Um, and that's where I really came to, um, watch TNG in order, which is something I had never done. And I'm sure lots of people had never really done. You just kind of watch it when it comes out, which is a huge strength of, uh, Star Trek. You can kind of see anything in any order and really have a good time. Um, but it was really nice being able to watch TNG in order and then being able to watch DS9 in order. Um, that's probably my favorite of the shows. Um, it's just a really strong show with some really strong writing. Um, and, uh, huge huge fan of ds9 um and i'm kind of just on like a regular it's just always on in the background it's um i'm either attentively watching it um if it's a good one or it's just there it's background music pretty much all day long all the time in my house so it's a big part of my life Uh, i really enjoy uh i enjoy me some star trek Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we're very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this episode when we get to it. But just before we do, as always, Kev, would you care to give us our summary? All right. The Galileo 7. Um, Kirk uh, sends the titular ship and crew off to investigate a quasar while stopping from delivering plague supplies. Very odd choice. But the the crew is then stranded on a planet thanks to sort of the stellar storms. Uh, the crew, including Spock, Bones, Scotty, and our four guest stars. Uh, they are quickly come afoul of like these giants with primitive tools who are attacking them, and they have to figure out a way to get off the planet while Kirk is holding off the bureaucrat on the ship, trying to get them to leave the crew behind. Uh, the crew, like some of them are killed off, but eventually, after a lot of debate of emotion versus logic, leading style between Spock and Bones, uh, they manage to get lift off of the planet, but not enough to get full out of the atmosphere. 
So Spock makes the possibly illogical choice to jettison the fuel, creating a signal so the Enterprise can come pick them up. And that is where it is. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, we're about... 15 16 episodes into the season now so we're we're getting to the point where uh we're starting to identify a lot more with the characters we're starting to spend a lot more time with them and we're getting the the sense that characters can be written for other than simply kirk and i think it's fair to say that the galileo 7 is uh one of the first examples of that um but let's start with general thoughts um joe how, how did you find the episode um I really, really enjoyed this episode. Um, I think it functions really well as kind of a baseline episode of Star Trek. So if you're kind of looking to show somebody an episode of the show that is, uh, uh, maybe they'll be watching Star Trek for the first time and you want to show them a kind of baseline, this is what Star Trek kind of is about, that hits all the themes and captures the main dynamics. This is probably a good one. Um, the episode's a really good showcase, I think, for some of the core cast. Um, Nimoy, especially, um, he's really bringing the goods in this episode. He's he's super, super strong in this one. Um, uh, some really great character moments for him uh, throughout. Um, I also really like that this sets up a kind of a story that they tell over and over again in Star Trek. So there's an anomaly in space, a shuttle crashes, they have to figure out a way to fix the ship, get off a hostile planet, um, and then reunite with um, uh, with the Enterprise. Um, if I'm not mistaken, this might be the first appearance of the shuttlecraft set that they also have in the show. So, um, and it's just really funny because it looks like like a bus in space. <laughs> inside of it. I think it's just really um, uh, an interesting design choice. Um, but the exterior of that set, I think, is so awesome. Like it's uh, it's really cool to see it uh, landed on the planet from the outside. I think it's just really really awesome visual. Um, but I'm a big fan of this episode. I think it's a it's a really really good one. Fantastic. Thanks very much. You're not wrong. This is very much the first appearance of the shuttlecraft um, and also the first time they've been able to actually build the prop. Uh, so, yeah, no, you're, you're completely correct about that. Um, Kev, how did you find this one? Yeah, I really like this one as well. I think it's like just top to bottom, well written, very well acted. Um, I think it's interesting. I think we're now getting Star Trek episodes that almost feel more written as Star Trek episodes now that the writers have like a grounding of these are who the characters are, these are how they interact. So this feels like, unlike here's a cool sci-fi idea I had, let's see how the cast would fit into this. It's more, it, I mean, I am still sort of skimming memory alpha as we speak, but this feels like from the writing, from the watching of it, um, Oh, yes. Okay. Here's a memory alpha bullet point to support what I'm about to say. The Rangus episode was influenced by the Spock character having proved popular. And that you can totally tell this feels like, oh, Spock and Bones are popping. Let's pair them off, see how they interact with each other. It's a very TV move that, yeah, it's like that's when you know a TV show is finding its legs, when it's not just, well, this is the interesting premise for the episode in a vacuum and I need something to write, put in this TV show. But I now know what these characters are. I know how they interact. I know how they are going to feel in these different situations. What are ways I can write towards that and play into that? And I think taking probably the two, well, easily the two most characters developed beyond Kirk himself, Spock and uh, McCoy, and pairing them off, I just think it's just such a smart move. Oh, no, I completely agree. I think it's the great strength of this episode that it takes um, to just brilliant performers in uh, Leonard DeMoy and DeForest Kelly and just basically lets them have a go at each other. I, I'm kind of unsurprisingly not going to really uh, disagree with either of you. This is an incredibly uh, kind of pulpy sci-fi story, but Star Trek is so good at doing pulp science fiction because of course it is. That's, that's pretty much what it is. And this is such a classic kind of piece of... Uh, pulp sci-fi you know you have a stranded crew you have um random aliens of the week who can threaten them in some way you have a situation that needs to be resolved you have the core character tensions where people are at each other's throats i mean it's it's just really good pulp but i never used the term pulp as a a pejorative it's you know good pulp is incredibly entertaining good pulp is where a lot of uh a lot of genres have their you know some of their best work and I think that's probably true for, for Star Trek as well. Um, I think there are obvious flaws in the episode. And I don't just mean the 
the um, the large gentlemen running around with with rugs thrown over their shoulders as unconvincing <laughs> aliens. Um, although also that, but there are yeah there are some some shortfalls uh, in places. But I think overall, I mean, there's so much great character interaction. There's so much tension. Um, there's a ticking clock. I mean, it's just it's all classic pulp stuff. I mean, what more do you want? Yeah. And I, um, I, uh, I, one thing I noticed um, is the uh, kind of when I was watching it for the first time, I watched it a couple times. When I was watching it for the first time, I was kind of uh, thinking, oh, God, they're doing this again, right? They're doing the Bones um, and Spock thing again. And then I had to really, like, orient myself to see, like, wait, 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 no. Right. They, they're doing this kind of for the first time. I'm just seeing this again because they did this dynamic throughout the show a lot. And they've done that dynamic through other characters, through all of the other series a lot. Um, so you kind of have to be in the right mind space, I feel like, when you're watching the original series. This isn't the most familiar of the Star Treks to me. So they're kind of inventing and doing things for the first time here, um, which is, uh, uh, was, it's really interesting. And it, you have to make sure that that doesn't color your perceptions of the episode, because it is a novel kind of a dynamic, um, and one that is one of the the true dynamics of the show that you're going to see for decades so yeah i mean i guess that's that's what i'm here for is um to give the perspective of someone watching this in order for the first time as an adult and all uh yeah this is like obviously spock and bones have played off each other before and they often uh interact in this same way but usually as like the two shoulder angels on kirk I, I didn't want to call it either than the devil because, yeah, they both have the logic and the emotion, the sort of counterbalance points that Kirk tends to synthesize. Um, and so you we're very familiar with the dynamic at this point, but this is the first episode, I think, that truly pairs them off in their own story. And that is such, like, fertile ground. It goes back to what I'm saying where this feels like writing with now history of the show under its feet. Now that they know how these characters will interact, that uh, Spock's logical way of leading would really annoy uh, McCoy's very emotional way of thinking and trying to be in touch with the rest of the people in the crew, not to mention the rest of the crew sort of being on his side. It's just such a good dynamic. And I think they really play off each other well. And it's, it's, it's almost nice to hear that they'll go to this well a lot later. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things about the way that McCoy is... Uh portrayed here is that it's actually not that consistent with the McCoy that we've had in previous episodes by which I mean as a general rule we've seen McCoy back Spock on a number of occasions especially you know when when uh, you know Kirk has had questions um, there have been a couple of occasions where it's actually been quite surprising that McCoy has turned around and supported Spock and we don't get that here and that's kind of like you were saying, Joe, you kind of have to be in the right headspace for that because it's a new development to their dynamic. They normally have the ability to disagree with each other, but when it comes down uh, to it, they support each other and they have, you know, that kind of unwavering question, uh, sorry, that unwavering uh, support for each other, professionalism, I suppose. We don't really get that here. There's open conflict between McCoy and Spock. And that is kind of the first time we've really seen that in Star Trek develop in such a way to a point where it slightly pushes McCoy out of character. If I'm being honest, I think that is a slight, a slight flaw of the episode. But the thing is, DeForest Kelly is so good at being able to portray that. He, he really nails the kind of righteous fury that McCoy feels against Spock. So it's kind of it's almost easy to kind of overlook the fact that McCoy is slightly out of character compared to what we've seen in, in previous episodes, but yeah, it, it, it's just that that dynamic between Kirk and Spock, sorry, between McCoy and Spock is just it's just unparalleled, and they are both such good performers. Like any slight character inconsistencies, just just get kind of flattened out by how good these two actors are. I'm really I'm really glad you mentioned the slightly out of character piece for for McCoy because there it's it's kind of an interesting setup where um, it almost feels like there's something wrong with this planet that's encouraging everyone to behave almost more emotionally than they would in any other type of crisis situation um there's yeah. like and there's an immediate 
uh, sort of uh, uh, opposition to the commanding officer in this episode in Spock, which I understand that it's necessary for them to tell the story of the episode in that way. But he's kind of facing immediately six people who are against every single thing that he <laughs> proposes they should try here. Um, and I almost feel like they kind of missed an opportunity to kind of pair them off a little bit into two different camps here to have it be a little bit more of a group conflict rather than everybody against uh, one guy. Um, because it's, it's really striking how everyone is immediately super angry at Spock for every single thing that he's trying to do. Um, basically saying, can we hold off on burying the people who have died for five minutes until we can fix the problem with the ship? And then I promise you can bury your fallen comrades, but we kind of have a crisis here to deal with. Um, it's just really interesting that uh, they, they kind of go so quickly to that well, the immediate second the ship crashes. Especially because Spock doesn't do much wrong. He's just right. kind of a jerk while he's doing things that, I mean, they that are mostly logical actions like the burial thing is kind of the weirdest Like you couldn't pick any other example where spock's logic is actually leading them down a wrong path instead they have to and i, I get it that you don't want to just leave a dead body out there but like you're under active attack and right. it feels like i don't understand why that's the thing that's a sticking point why it's so unforgivable that Spock won't let you go retrieve a dead body when you are like when monsters are bearing down at you. Well, I think it's very much a case of um, symbolic logic, if you'll excuse the expression, rather than plot logic. They need something right. which provides that contrast between Spock's kind of very emotionless, logical approach and the kind of the more reactive, emotional human approach. And that's that's kind of the that's the pressure point. But it is again. I'm sorry, it's very hard not to use this word, but it is illogical. And anybody who had been in that like situation, like yeah, yeah, we can we can hold off our our, our respect for the dead for five minutes so that we don't get a big plastic spear through the back. That's that's not being disrespectful for your fallen comrades. Your fallen comrades probably wouldn't want you to die for that. Uh, it's it's a bit. It's a bit of a weird choice. And again, I, we've mentioned this in the podcast before, but it's a really weird choice for uh, an episode or for a series when, where so many of the cast were actively involved in service. You know, a lot of people involved were in World War Two, And so they would have that kind of structured dynamic as part of their... Um, kind of like, you know, it would almost be like breathing. It's just sort of automatic. All right, you deal with your crisis... Then you deal with this other stuff, and and it's a weird pressure point. It is one of again, it's like I said before, that there are a few flaws in the episode, and that kind of weird insistence on on the funeral, it it, it functions symbolically, but it doesn't really function in in terms of the plot. Although I will say one thing for it is that it does give Spock something he can learn because they're all really upset with him when he can't, you know handle the first funeral and he tries to fob it off onto McCoy and McCoy has to correct him and say no no this is your responsibility and but when the second not a red shirt dies um Spock goes and actively retrieves the body so you can you can see it as a kind of you know Spock is learning from the situation he is developing his understanding of, of humanity or human beings but it's a bit inelegant I think it's fair to say right I mean, there are other good examples of how they wedge Spock against the other crew. Like, Spock insisting they have to leave someone behind is a, like a legitimately good example of how you can create this wedge issue. And then just like normal character beats of, and we've seen this with Spock before, but it's nice to have it sort of highlighted when it's plot relevant as well. Him like reacting very coldly and talking about like other issues when someone's recently died is like comes a sticking point. And yeah, that really work. Those are bits of great characterization that do hold up to like actual emotional logic, which makes the points where it doesn't hold up all that stand out more. I am. Um, I really like this one line um, where Spock is talking about how much weight they need to lose so that they can actually take off off the planet. So they, mm -hmm. he compares it to the weight of three grown men and McCoy says, well, or the equivalent weight of something equivalent. So McCoy's uh, brain right there is 
well, we can lose weight somewhere else in the ship. Right. Why are you instantly thinking about 500 pounds of human that need to be left behind? Is there another alternative? And I think that that, that it just instantly stuck out to me as a really cool dynamic to exploit early on in the episode to show the difference between them of, you know, uh, Spock as this like cold calculating, well, it's 500 pounds of whatever. So 500 pounds of person is just as much as um, otherwise. But then they kind of uh, uh, give Spock an opportunity to counter that later when he's um, uh, trying to oppose the more warlike impulses of the crew by sticking up for the, you know, nine foot monsters that are attacking them and trying to discourage the crew um, from immediately trying to uh, uh, attack them with phasers. Um, he he kind of uh, comments on human warlikeness and such, which feels very, very like uh, uh, sci-fi pulpy in that in that way that he describes it there. But um, it's a really cool, it's a really cool setup early on in the episode when they when they discuss that. As a side note, for those of us who uh, use the metric system, 500 pounds. <laughs> they, they might have said we need to lose 500 Roddenberries of weight for all that time. What's that? I, I really had to go look it up. It, it was it's incredibly annoying. Anyway, sorry, that's entirely beside the point. No, I, like, I, I, I do agree about these wedge issues. And I think it's one of the things that I'm kind of I'm like, maybe you guys can help me sort of parse this out because it's one of the things I'm slightly conflicted about. On the one hand, I really like the ticking clock of the Enterprise with the, the 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 deadline and the, you know, annoying commissioner that, you know, is constantly right. on Kirk's back to, to get going. I do like that dynamic and the ticking clock does add to the tension. But at the same time, I wonder if the episode might have benefited from spending... Because all those scenes with, like, Commissioner Ferris are basically exactly the same. Kirk, you need to leave. Well, I'm not going to leave. Yes, but you need to. Ah, but I'm not going to. Ah, ha, ha. And, like, we get that, like, eight times in the episode or something. It's ridiculous. Um, and I do wonder if that time might have been better spent exploring that character dynamic because we get some good material with uh with boma and a good performance from from don marshall there um but the rest of the crew kind of fade into uh kirk spock mccoy the black one the woman and the others and I'd like, i'm trying not to be reductive but that's oh, yeah. kind of what the episode reduces them to and i i feel like you could usefully use that time spent with kirk and, and Ferris exploring, like, uh, particularly uh, Yeoman Mears. She, she just sits there. She has no character whatsoever. And, like, I get, like, I get the two lieutenants that die. They have to be the, in brackets, or sorry, inverted commas, red shirts of the episode. So we get to establish the threat that the creatures are, are providing. But I feel like the dynamic there could be more explored but at the same time i do like the pressure of, of of ferris being there and the ticking clock so i'm i don't know i'm kind of divided on that i am um, i uh, first of all i love the commissioner's title he's the galactic high commissioner which is a really interesting um uh title which i don't think is ever encountered at all kev you know spoilers later mm -hmm. on in the series i don't know um it's interesting that a galactic high commissioner is sort of chaperoning Kirk on this, you know, uh, uh, medical uh, sort of mission that he has to take. Um, but I, I absolutely... And, and that he can take, and he can take command of the ship. It's, it's a cool type of dynamic that is discussed a lot um, throughout uh, Star Trek, but I don't know how well it actually works here. Because you're right, it is incredibly repetitive. Um, it gives Shatner some good moments here. Um, he's He's such a good actor in this show to be totally honest um oh yeah thinking just like every single thing that he does he just owns that role so strongly um and he's good in it um but i almost wish that um uh the episode feels overstuffed in that there are so many characters on the planet i feel like it should just all be there or allow this to be a little bit more of a moral choice for Shatner on whether we should leave or we should stay because there's an, I wish it was an internal struggle that he were having about whether to go or stay rather than having someone just like shouting it in his ear because he would have that moral struggle of, Oh, should I do, should we go and save more people or do I have to wait and try to save my, uh, my comrades before leaving and possibly in danger 
however many millions of people on this uh, medical mission, rather than having it, oh, here's the bad guy telling you, you need to leave really soon to go save all of these people, uh, which feels like a pretty logical choice uh, uh, one could make. So it is a, it, it's a, it's a strange kind of um, uh, uh, B plot, if one could call it that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that it's a, it's a tough, um, it's a tough situation for, for them to kind of balance these two story elements. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I think we can, I think the ticking clock works well. I like seeing Kirk as the high commissioner, but I also think like you can cut the number of scenes in half if we were making this today. And I think that's an important point because I was noticing the rhythm I was watching it and Memory Alpha thankfully breaks these things by commercial break to sort of confirm this. So these Kirk and Ferris scenes happen almost like clockwork soon after the commercial break, right before the commercial break. And it sort of like has the rhythm of like the music sting fade to black on the ticking clock has gotten shorter and coming back up, checking back in, where's our crew cut down to the crew. It feels like such a structure of the time where if an audience member is turning on their TV to watch Star Trek in a nonlinear or a strictly linear fashion, however you want to think about it. Um, then yeah, they want to know, they want to see the enterprise first. They want Kirk to tell them what's going on. And then that gets us back to the planet. Once he's, re-explained in his captain log what's going on we can cut back to where everyone's on the planet and catch up with them and then at the end of before the commercial break we want to go back up so we get the clock ticking again and get the tension going again before uh we go to commercial break and people are still hooked it's like such a old way of doing tv functional device and i think that's why we have so many scenes is we want us the audience wants to see kirk at least check in with him every time they're in between the little commercial breaks it's and of course, when you watch on streaming, that's totally flattened. And yeah. you're only noticing these breaks just by the way, just by these like little phantom rhythms of how the episode fades to black and comes back up. Right. Um, I mean, that's not, that, that can still mean it's a quality downgrade of the episodes, the fact that they were playing to that. I just find that very interesting that that's probably why there are so many scenes coming back to the Enterprise. But I think this is a story that you could very easily remake now with basically no changes oh, to it. Yeah. I mean, there's there is some episode I can't remember what I think it's Discovery has some episode about um people crashed on a planet and they have to like struggle to survive and it's basically just a retelling of, of the Galileo Seven. It it's such a Well, I suppose it depends how generous you're feeling. I was gonna say it's such a Cliché stroke archetype. Please feel free to delete as you think applicable. But in this case, I'm I'm deleting cliché. I think it's such an archetype of this kind of story that you just you can just so easily uh, you can so easily replicate it. Um, there's an episode of Voyager called Good Shepherd, which is basically just this story as well, but it's 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 set entirely in a shuttlecraft, although one in space rather than on a planet. Like it's it's something that will come up time and time again, and that does speak to the the kind of key elements that this episode is is honed in on. So, um, I mean, again, you know, obviously, I am sort of criticizing it for having too many of those scenes, uh, but it, it requires virtually no retooling for this to be an episode which could absolutely effortlessly go out as discovery or as, as strange new worlds or whatever i think i remember that discovery episode is the amish planet for lack of a better term episode the one with a uh less technologically forward uh human sort of stranded there which i remember very clearly oh, yeah. because it's like one of the few good episodes of discovery because it's not one of the dozen episodes of the season that's about fixing some anomaly and an actual honest to god one-off they did <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that tangent aside, you're right. It's, it's such like a good format. And I mean, that's what that's what we love to see from Star Trek is just these contained adventures that can be, that draw on archetypes, not cliches, because they're not, their welcome has not been worn out, but they're archetypes. They're very solid and they work well still. And you can turn an adventure out of any of those. One of the one of the tough things about Star Trek sometimes is I find that I'm like I'm sometimes critiquing it for what isn't there and what they never mm -hmm. intended to be there 
rather than just like what, watching what's just on screen and trying to enjoy it for exactly what it is. Um, and one thing that I noticed about this episode is um, the the space monster element of it was challenging for me, I would think, because I feel like in a more, in a more like, uh, uh, in, in say if this were a TNG episode or something, I feel mm-hmm. like rather than a space monster, they would have some kind of environmental thing that they're confronting on the planet rather than just having you know, nine foot, you know, uh, guys in suits coming around and just attacking and eating the crew. Apparently Um, (laughs) it's a, uh, it's a, it was a, it's a weird choice now from my frame of mind. Um, But that was, it feels like a, a type of thing that they went to that well so often in the original series, it feels um, that uh, um, it's, it's a little bit difficult to take that threat seriously um which isn't totally fair to the show um but it's something that i can't really get away from um in my in my thoughts in the episode like oh if this were just really bad weather and that were you know there's an electrical storm oh no how are we going to get this the, the shuttle off the ground um with the electrical storm happening that feels more uh a little bit more tangible or a little bit less hokey unfortunately than than the space monsters um sort of slowly lumbering toward people as they sit there screaming um that's a that's that's a tough point for me but uh yeah i guess it is what it is with with tos type stuff i think that's another example of why we have to just put ourselves in the mindset of when this was aired because not necessarily like excusing it but just well yeah space alien throwing rocks at people and in 1990s that was seen as a little too hokey and now i guess (laughs) his opinions differ but um, yeah, I think that is just how it had to be. That's the from the show is, is the aliens in these costumes. And I don't blame them for going to that well again. A blunt uh, solution to the problem of what can be the ticking clock for the crew on the ground. And it's just, guys, guys, some rocks at them. It's not elegant, and there could be more tied together with it, but it is what it is. I think part of the problem with the um, aliens having uh, their presence be so important to the episode is that actually, although I th- this is kind of this feels like it's the wrong way around, but the alien stuff is all really badly directed, and most of the stuff in the shuttlecraft and on the Enterprise even is pretty well directed. We get some nice swooping camera movements on the Enterprise. Uh, and on the shuttlecraft set, we get lots of sort of low shots from the ground, like when Scotty is, is sort of working away, you know, in the guts of the thing. And, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the nice framing down kind of the length of the shuttlecraft with the, the, the characters, you know, sort of three or four sitting each side. There's some really nice direction there. But everything about the direction of the hairy aliens, or furry aliens, I suppose I should say, um, just, it's so flat. And there's one cliffhanger I think where is it? No, I can't remember if it's uh, Latimer or Kellowitz that dies. Um, that the, he, he he sort of looks like he's going to be gently hugged to death as this this man wearing a, a you know fur bath mat slowly sort of waddles towards him. It's terrible. Um, and somehow, like I said, like I think I think uh, I think Robert Guest, who directed this, does a good job with the ship down stuff. And really falls flat when it comes to the planetary material. And that's almost always the other way around. It's almost always the case that the, the ship stuff is just like point and do a take. Point and do a take. And then when you get out of the ship, you get the more dynamic stuff. But but here here it's 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 not the case. And and I think that, that really does work to undermine you know, some of the, the planetary sequences, unfortunately. I think the issue with the direction of the creatures might have been, and this is where another memory alpha tidbit comes in, is uh, Wa Chang, their usual like creatures, costume, makeups, effects person. Uh, he created the ape creatures, and they were considered too grotesque to show in close-ups. And a close-up shot of them had to even be deleted <laughs> because it just didn't work. And, I mean, I don't know if, at least because they weren't appealing for the camera, I think might have been why they were sort of hampered in directing them. Well, they sure did a good job of keeping us uh, away from the horror because they're right. mostly just quite funny. Yeah, it's. I mean, and who's to say sixty standards versus present day standards? What is horrifying to someone back then is just like, oh, it's a guy in a costume to us now. But yeah, uh, I, I just yeah, I also just agree that it is just falls very flat. The creature stuff. I 
I had to rewind the scene where the first one of them dies from a spear hit like a couple times because they kept missing it. I just kept couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> that is that is an incredible shot because the spear oh, yeah. the spear is twelve feet long and it is it's like it's truly enormous um and obviously when they're handling the spears you could tell that this is made out of the lightest foam that mm -hmm. one could possibly make a prop out of um but uh i think it was um yeah the monster stuff isn't the strongest part of it but it's it feels necessary because they're trying to tell a story there's a there's a, a crisis on this planet they're under attack and it's uh, causing this extra element of pressure to expose a rift between two characters or a group of characters and and Spock, and I think that it's really um, uh, it it serves the episode in in kind of what they need it to do. One, I just have a note on this. One thing I really just wanted to call out um, after the second character is killed by the monster, uh, Spock picks this guy up like it's nothing. He picks up a full grown man like he weighs, you know, five pounds. It is incredible how he just tosses him over his shoulders. He walks away. He gets a spear thrown at him while he's walking away um, with this uh, with this dead crew member. Um, and uh, actually, that's just a testimony to, uh, testimony to I think, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Um, he's just uh, such a cool actor and such a cool guy and apparently incredibly strong. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to call that out before I forgot it. Yeah, he avoids a spear that's thrown at him, which takes a chunk of polystyrene out of the rock that it hits very visibly, <laughs> which is, you know, unfortunate. Uh, but no, you're right. Like the, it will be. It's not at this point, but it will become established lore that the Vulcans are physically stronger than humans, and I quite like the fact that they don't make a big song and dance about that. I mean, just like, I presume it's just you know Leonard Nimoy, pretty jacked. Um, but it, but it's just yeah like you're right he's so effortless in the way he just like picks up this corpse and then you know strolls off with it yep yep uh, find the body of this dead guy I think I'll just take it behind this rock now yeah. oh look a plastic spear it's it's so kind of nonchalant but it really does work for the episode uh, one thing I wanted to uh, mention um, and JG you mentioned it earlier um, yeah. I think the Boma character is is really good um, in this one. Um, I wish that he had come back at some point um, in the show, but he, I don't think he makes another appearance in Star Trek. Um, but I think that it would be, it would have been great if he did, um, because there's like the, the seed of like, oh, this is a new character on the show type thing, um, which they unfortunately don't ever come back to. Um, but I really, really like his performance here. I think he does a really good job with the material that he gets. Um, and I could easily see him being a part of that, like secondary crew of, you know, not quite extras, but uh, they're kind of, you know, somewhat involved in the show and you see them every four or five episode type characters. Um, it would have been great if he was, because I think he does a good job in this one. Yeah. I was another memory alpha thing is relevant here. Uh, Don Marshall, the actor behind uh, Boma, he was, they were going to bring him back, and instead he had signed on to become a regular player on Land of the Giants, the Irwin Allen show. We, of course, all remember. <laughs> a show I'm not just hearing about for the first time. Um, have, you, have you genuinely never heard of Land of the Giants before? Oh, I haven't, no. Oh, you lucky, lucky man. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolutely dreadful. Um, I, will say, I will add one thing. Um, you, obviously, you're right. Um, uh, Lieutenant Bomber doesn't come back in terms of the series, but there is a spin-off novel uh, mm. which features him uh, where he is court-martialed for his uh, behavior in this episode. Wow. I, I haven't read it, so I've got nothing else to add other than that entirely useless piece God. of information. <laughs> That's some real nerd spinoff novel stuff. Where it's like, well, let's find this one little thing and like spin it out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, very, very much the Star Trek equivalent of Big Finish, right? It's uh, it's interesting that he is specifically court-martialed for that, and apparently not McCoy, uh, who uh, plays just as big a part in the uh, opposition to the chain of command that exists uh, um, on this. Uh, on the planet so yeah that's uh, interesting but i really really do like that character wish they had gone back to that well a little bit um later it's, it's on really unfortunately hard to, to court martial a recurring character 
Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I do agree. I think Don Marshall is great in the role as well. And it's amazing how many cliches he manages to subvert. So black guy doesn't die first. In fact, black guy doesn't die at all, which is a minor miracle in 1966, 1967. Um, no red shirts die in this episode. And there's two of them. Uh, just like it's amazing how many of the kind of um, swerve and miss we have, and I, I really like Don Marshall's performance here. Like for all that, I think the whole thing with the funeral and all that stuff is is a bit overblown, and and kind of melodramatic. I think he's still. It's a bit like McCoy's opposition to Spock, which feels a little bit pushed too far, all things considered, given how we've seen McCoy react in the past. Like, I think it's the same for Boma. I think his reaction is pushed too far, but the quality of the performance pretty much gets around that. Don Marshall's really, really good in this episode. Why the hell he accepted a regular role on Land of the Giants is anybody's guess. I guess it's a regular paycheck, but like, he never really goes on to have that much uh, of a career. It's It's kind of mostly just pulp stuff and like i said before i i, I never use the term pulp as, a, as a, a pejorative um but he's a really good actor he's a, he's got great sort of performance and he's got real presence in this and yet you know his 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 kind of cv consists of dragnet and ironside star trek obviously um rawhide uh, you know the bionic woman and god help us all um buck rogers in the 25th century it's it's a it's a it's a shame that he doesn't get an, an episode memorably titled planet of the slave girls um, oh god it's <laughs> i haven't seen it i don't think i'm going to uh but it's just it's it's kind of a shame that his his i, I don't want to say it's a shame he's he's just a journeyman actor but you know it's also a bit of a shame that he never quite manages to to go on to all that much because i think he's a really great presence in this episode I just want to go back to this novel and then I read a little bit more about it. Um, the court the court martial he was summoned up for was called by Montgomery Scott, who was also insubordinate. <laughs> That's why. <what> right. <laughs> That's just uh, rewriting history there. I guess you'd have to catch the episode on reruns whenever this novel is being written. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's like a 1980s novel. So yeah, that. I guess if your memory is fuzzy, you just go for uh, the recurring character and don't remember that everyone else was complicit. Um, but yeah, anyways, he is a great character. Like I just like I'm in full agreement. I wish he came back more. Like he's in the same co-starring level of billing as McCoy and Scott, right. as the first Kelly and James Doohan. So I think that indicates you know he could have been one of the one of the regular crew eventually, and and said Land of the Giants had the rear its head. Um, yeah, I don't know, and he's he's easily the most developed of this other four guest of the four guest stars on the outlay. I was all I was gonna say. He um, uh, one thing I really like about um, what uh, Spock is doing in this episode is they have this direct antagonistic relationship between Spock and McCoy, but also Spock and, and Boma. Um, but Spock never stops um. Uh, acknowledging good ideas from people that he's in a sort of uh, antagonistic type dynamic with. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Boma will come up with a good idea. We're three quarters of the way through the episode and Spock will say, yeah, that's actually a really good idea. Let's do that. Um, I think it just highlights something about that Spock, like hyperlogical character, not uh, not even engaging in that emotional game at all, trying to stay above it. Uh, and being able to identify, oh, this is a good idea, regardless of his specific feelings about one crew member or something like that. I think it's just, it's just, a, it's such a strong piece of of that character. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, th yeah, it's that that whole th the thing that is so easy, I think, for writers to get wrong. But when you get right, when they get it right, you really notice it. Like, um, the only person that Spock is straightforwardly critical of is himself. Everything else, he kind of, like, he has no prejudice against Boma at all. Like, for all the grief, for all the aggro, for all the, you know, pain in the ass that he is. Like, Spock just goes, yeah, you had a good idea. Let's do that one. And that's fine. But it's such a, it's such a great way of kind of... Um, you know, show don't tell. We we so often hear about how logical Spock is, or how he's not prejudiced, or how blah 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 blah. 
But here we just get to see it in action and there's no attention drawn to it whatsoever. It, it's not making a big point. It's just, that's how Spock responds to the situation. Therefore, that's how Spock responds to the situation. And, you know, that's how the character should be written. And I think that's generally true of the, the, the main cast here. Like Kirk's frustrations in the ship are completely character consistent. And, and, and you know, Shatner doesn't have an awful lot to do in this episode, but he's really good at it. Um, same with Scott as well. Um, you know, Defar uh, sorry, uh, James Doohan has, uh, you know, basically just has to lie in his stomach for about 20-odd minutes and, and poke his hand down through this thing. Oh, and also stare through that weird periscope binocular <laughs> thing, whatever. Anyway, um, but, you know, like, James Doohan does a really good job of just being, like, a secondary utility player. Even Michelle Nichols, and this is not an episode that, you know, that has anything to do with Ahura whatsoever, but she's a really good utility player here. We, we, we often speak of this in the podcast, but, like, she's great in this episode. She isn't just opening hailing frequencies. There's definitely a time where she's somewhere over by Spock's console, just, like, figuring stuff out, and then Kirk asks her a bunch of questions, and she has the answers and it's just it's such a a normal kind of dynamic as it were again they're, they're not drawing attention to the fact that Uhura is doing something other than just opening healing frequencies they're not doing a big song and dance about the fact that Scotty can fix stuff because that's what he does that's what they do and it's 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 exactly how that dynamic needs to be played it's just part of what's going on right and I think also her. Uh, we have uh, George Takei is in this episode as well as Sulu just popping in and now his now very regular role. And also great work just giving the stats, deferring to Kirk and just, yeah, it's just you need conviction to all deliver the exposition lines like that. And he has it. Nicole's has it. They are just so good at their roles. Yeah, I think it's um, it's always fun to see when they allow Uhura to like truly participate in the problem solving aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And very early on in the episode, she gets that moment where she solves, I forget exactly what it was. I don't think she's responsible for locating the ship, but I think that she's responsible for determining what the problem was that led to the ship crashing or something like that. Um, and she gets some really great techno babble type, you know, explanation for, um, for what happened. And that's all on her. Uh, she, right. she figures out what the problem is. She's, you're right. Not just, you know, opening up hailing frequencies or, um, uh, something like that. I think it's, uh, it's all too rare in this type of show, in this movie, in this, in, in the show and in the later, uh, TOS movies that she gets that opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. and that's super unfortunate. Um, but, uh, it's good to see in this episode that she does get that chance. Well, just, uh, just to slightly tie into that, um, one of the odd things, we are talking about um, Don Marshall earlier on as, as Lieutenant Bomber, one of the odd things about him getting uh, that big role in Land of the Giants, the most memorable uh, sci-fi show of the 1960s, uh, is that he was basically the other really prominent African-American uh, TV star. It was him and it was Nichelle Nichols. Now, that will eventually change, especially once Mission Impossible starts to come along and, and, and other bits and pieces. But at this particular point, 67, 68, I think it was when Land of the Giants kicked off, there just aren't black actors who are taking this kind of uh, place in in popular mainstream television. Uh, and, and that alone just I mean, we, we, you know, we, we, we can't talk about Nichelle Nichols and her important uh, position as a, uh, you know, in terms of race relations every every single episode. But it, it is an odd parallel with, with Don Marshall. They're, they're just, that was it. That was pretty much as far as it went. I think if we've gone on long enough, and maybe it's time to wrap it up with the um, uh, the ending scene. And I just, I just oh, want to chop that out. Because, yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys don't like it. <laughs> oh, it's so awful. Yeah. Some of the worst worst contrived laughter I have ever seen in my entire life. I did, mean, I maybe like I just kind of, I think it's charming. <laughs> I think it's it, it is very fake, but it's oh, they're just having fun. Like I under like I don't know. I I like it when TV characters, especially like the ones I'm familiar with, I don't know, just like that you would end like a really tense dramatic episode with just Kirk sort of riffing and needling Spock. 
I think is I don't know. It's it's very light. It's fun. I like it. It's I it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom all the time. Two of our crew are dead. Almost all of our shuttlecraft crew were almost killed. It was Uh, only an act of desperation that saved everyone, and we almost apparently caused New Paris to die of space plague. But, you know, we can yuck it up for a bit. (laughs) It's it's one of those aspects of Star Trek that uh, is, I don't know, like, even the bad stuff in Star Trek, I like. It's just a really strange thing. Like, I know it's super silly i know that the 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 fake laughing is so artificial just it's so obvious it it, the first five seconds or so of it it's fairly convincing and then they just keep going and going (laughs) going and they keep showing it and showing it and showing it and it gets funny for the wrong reasons but even then it's just well it's star trek yeah it's so silly but I mean, that's kind of what I like about it, right? Like, it's uh, it's one of those things, like, if it weren't there, if it wasn't there, I would still, you know, I would say, oh, I wouldn't notice that it was gone, right? But the fact that it is there, it's one of those, like, especially hokey elements of TOS that I guess you don't see that much in the other shows as it gets a little bit more, uh, maybe the production is, is, is super different um, later on. But um, it is a very era-appropriate type, closing of the episode where everyone just kind of laughing um for 35 seconds or so as the episode closes um but i uh yeah that's uh that's kind of my feelings on the the final scene of the episode i mean it also it's the star trek is such a stage play type thing um and it feels like such a it's like okay you could just they're on a set like you could tell this is just like a play type Mm. thing and they're doing this pretend laugh at the end because it's fake and it's a show um but i just i mean i love that too that's that's kind of what that's it's integral to star trek just as much as all the other stuff yeah i think i i see where coming from jg Though I think I prefer this version to the one where Spock comes back on the ship and has to go to therapy. I don't know. I guess that's two very different extremes, but yeah, it's I it's fine. It's television. I, it's like a play, like Joe was saying. It's it's it's, it's fine, Kev. You're a very stubborn man. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think we can probably uh, I think we can probably move towards our uh, sort of end of episode. Uh, thoughts and then wrap up and move towards the score so uh kev why don't you go first i think i'm going to go with an eight out of ten a solid score nothing wowed me but at the same time yeah it's just perfectly built from the ground up maybe a few flaws that here and there but yeah nothing rocked the boat too much negatively and so i think eight is just great for yeah a perfectly well-made respectable episode of television Fantastic. Great. Uh, Joe, what do you want to give this one? Um, I'll say um, uh, almost the identical reasons, but a slightly lower score, I'd say. I'd probably say a 7 out of 10 um, for this one. I, I've i got this this theory about Star Trek that it's almost all mediocre, and that's great. Um, <laughs> all good. Um, there's some really bad stuff and there's some really amazing stuff, truly amazing stuff. But the fact that all of it's mediocre is a, is a huge strength of the show. Um, and I think that this is a above mediocre episode. It never reaches the heights of like the truly great ones of TOS, but it's so like archetypical type Star Trek setup, um, that, uh, I can't help, but help, but love it in that way. So seven out of 10 for me. Fantastic. I think I'm going to annoy Kev and give this an eight and a half out of ten. Ah. Um, I really, I don't know, I really, really enjoy this episode. I'm, I'm aware of its glaring flaws, but I just can't help but get behind it. And I think almost all of it is down to the performances. I think everybody is just really at the top of their game. They can tell what kind of material that they have and they just pitch their performances perfectly towards it. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the side of generosity and give this one an eight and a half out of 10. And I think that means we can wrap our discussion on this episode and move to recommendations. So Joe, you're our guest. So why don't you go first? What would you like to recommend for us this week? Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm glad I get a chance to go first here. Um, I'm going to recommend the 1995 Tony Scott movie Crimson Tide um, uh, starring um, I haven't seen this movie in years so I'm like recommending it based on my my hazy memory of watching it 
on TV on like a Saturday afternoon um, uh, many, many times. Um, but uh, uh, sorry, uh, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. Uh, Gene Hackman is a uh, commanding officer of a submarine. Denzel Washington is his second in command. Um, there is a sort of like a nuclear crisis um, and there's conflict between the two of them that I think is um, a pretty cool, it's not an exact, you know, mirror of this episode uh, that we watched, but it's a, it explores similar dynamics of there being conflict um, within the chain of command that I just really, really like. Um, and it also kind of explores the sort of weird gray space between the two characters where no one is truly right, no one is truly wrong in the situation. They're just you know, using what information they have available to them to uh, make decisions. Um, so yeah, I really, I love that movie. It's a, it's a total dad movie. It's a, it's a, like I said before, it's a Saturday afternoon with commercials. You're watching it on broadcast TV type movie. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's such a movie movie. I, I, I really love that movie and I, I totally want to revisit it now after watching this episode. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kath, what would you like to recommend? I would recommend a movie I saw in theaters before its Netflix release, but it will be out on Netflix by now, and that is Guillermo del Toro's stop-motion Pinocchio movie. I want to make sure this doesn't get buried by Netflix, because it is absolutely incredible. It's, I mean, you know the story of Pinocchio. This shifts the setting to 30s fascist Italy, definitely a lot of contemporary to that time references to the Mussolini stuff going on in very del Toro fashion. Think Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water and things like that. Uh, but still telling the story of Pinocchio, a wooden boy who is brought to life by a magical fairy. There's a cricket around. We all basically know the shape of the story and not much has changed there. But I think there's just such a sense of A, like as you can expect from a del Toro movie, really good sense of design and purpose and just thematic richness to a sort of very creepy bedtime story veneer. And also this co-writer, Patrick McHale, whose other notable credit is my beloved Over the Garden Wall. Uh, a very sly sense of humor, a very dark comedic sense that would still appeal to kids. Um, yeah, just they work so well together, del Toro and McHale. I think their sensibilities complement each other perfectly. And it just creates a story that is a very fresh, very funny take on Pinocchio that stands in almost very stark contrast to Disney trotting out Tom Hanks. And I didn't, I didn't even watch that movie, but, you know, it's just, you know, it's just more of the same of doing exactly what they did in the 40s. And, yeah, I think instead this is, like, a really interesting take on, like, a really classic book, classic story. I think the voice cast is incredible. Uh David Bradley is Geppetto, and he is absolutely incredible. Uh, he's incredible a lot, but he's fantastic. Um, Ewan McGregor as the cricket is very funny. And it's just, and then you can just look through the cast, and it's stacked with all those, like, Del Toro regulars and really classy actors. But, yeah, it's really good. Uh, Pinocchio, Guillermo Del Toro's Pinocchio, probably a build under to avoid confusion. It's really recommend watching it and oh the stop motion animation itself is just gorgeous it uh to not to like pick fights when i like both of these movies but henry Selleck also had a stop motion netflix movie come out this year wendell and wild a movie i think is pretty good pretty visually great looking kind of a messy story and i mean the, the contrast is just so stark where like Selleck is like kind of trapped in his own like over ambitious screenplay and also a very 90s way of design and thinking of it whereas this movie just feels so much more interesting and careful and unique in its own way um and i still like one more while a lot i also soft recommend that but yeah the pinocchio is the like animated film of the year period Fantastic. Thank you very much. I feel it necessary because we are, you know, unspeakably geeky on this podcast, as you might expect from a Star Trek podcast, um, to point out um, David Bradley, or as we know him, the first Doctor. Uh, you know, that would be a terrible thing to neglect and not mention whilst we're just, you know, quietly glossing past uh, uh, Pinocchio. So, uh, yeah, but he is such a good actor. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm not, I, I, I haven't seen uh, Pinocchio yet. I will watch it, but like, I would just watch anything david bradley's in oh yeah he i mean obviously the first doctor is his biggest nerd cred right now but 
all over the place um and just so many great things you probably know him from game of thrones as the bridge guy <laughs> was his name uh you know he does the red wedding we all know that um but yeah so many other great shows and movies i have professor filch if you want to bring the specter of that franchise up um and then just lots of other he'll just always pop in do a little recurring role in like a lot of different shows and movies and things like that he's he's and always fantastic i i completely agree and as a complete sidebar the red wedding is one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life it's exactly the moment i quit game of thrones i just laugh my ass off um anyway that's entirely beside the point um i'm, I'm gonna do a recommendation which is also sort of faintly related to the Galileo 7, I suppose, which is I'm going to recommend the reboot of uh, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, so the 2004 to 2009 version by, by Ronald D. Moore. It's slightly out of favour at the moment, um, but I kind of just adore it beyond all sort of reason and hope. Um, I, I think it's uh, obviously a terrific sort of series in its own right obviously it's got a brilliant cast etc etc but i think kind of the parallel to the galileo 7 is very much that idea that so much of the show works through sort of symbolic logic rather than strictly linear plot logic and and you know it's not a big surprise to discover that the cylons do not have a plan and things kind of fall apart at the end and that's all true, but I kind of, I get really frustrated with that being a criticism of the show because I don't really think that that's what the show's about. I think that's what the show's actually about is its, its characters. And there are almost no sci-fi shows that have characters as well-drawn and well-acted as as the reboot of Battlestar, Galactic, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Edward James almost is simply incredible as Adama. He's just like, I mean, career best doesn't even, doesn't even touch the sides. Mary McDonnell as, as Rosalind is, is, is if anything, even better. Like the, the finale of Battlestar Galactica comes in for a lot of criticism. Some of it's deserved, some of it's not. But if it was just for her death scene, sorry, spoilers for a nearly 20 year old series. Um, if it was just for her death scene, like the whole series would be justified. She's utterly captivating and one i honestly think it's one of the best tv performances i've ever seen in my life and that is not hyperbole i'm not overstating that i think it stands up to anything that you want to throw up whether it's like your madman or your breaking bads or, or like any it's it's that level of performance she's unbelievable katie zakoff as um a starbuck is brilliant it's like everybody is just like so good james callis deserves a shout out as baltar of course but like and of course trisha health is just brilliant beyond words everything about this show is great it's it is depressing it is dystopia it is all these things and yet it's also just so compelling and and for all some of the plots are great and i don't want to suggest otherwise some of them yeah they get a bit wonky towards the end but it's such a I think it's such a passionate series and I think that's why I respond to it so strongly. I've seen it multiple, multiple times and, and like a lot of the shows that I love, it, it has this in common with uh, Blake 7, Farscape, like a lot of those kind of shows. Everything is anchored in the performances and the characters. So no matter how outrageous the situation, no matter how wonky the special effects, no matter how um, you know variable the plotting might be, those characters are what keep you coming back to it time and time and time again. I utterly adore Battlestar Galactica. I really don't think that it should be going through the kind of disservice that it's going through at the moment. And so, anyway, that's me. That's my recommendation for this week. I uh, I love I love Battlestar Galactica, the uh, the reboot series. I think that it's it's from that perfect era of TV where it's still super super confident in just being a TV series and not being a you know thirteen hour long movie type thing oh, where yeah, they meander yeah. their way in the middle like there's so much respect and understanding of the various characters in it and that's all you know ron moore knowing mm -hmm. how to write a tv show um and understanding that i mean you see it in for all mankind as well um there's just an understanding of the the genre of just television that you also see in Mad Men and the other you know those 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 huge tv shows that are so confident as tv shows and not just about you know a long 13 hour plot that you happen to be telling in hour-long installments uh over the week so i'm in total agreement a lot of people will say it's of its time you know iraq war era type stuff with bsg but what show isn't of its time and even if you remove it from that context uh 
you can have no knowledge of that context and still absolutely identify and understand the themes um, and the storylines they're trying to tell in that show. So yeah, total agreement with that. A big, big BSG fan. Yeah. It's, it's a show I've heard a lot about. It's, I'll get to it someday, I assume, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I am, I know Ronald Moore from uh, For All Mankind, which I think is the first show he really has fingers in that I watched. I mean, obviously the premise of the podcast is I haven't seen much Star Trek and uh, on the flip side, I have Helix and Outlander never tempted me. <laughs> so yeah, it's, that's pretty much it. Uh, I love For All Mankind though, and what he did for that show. And it's a bummer. He's, more hands off with that as he does some universe Disney parks streaming service thing streaming you know, whatever whatever <laughs> I don't care he's writing the that, Big Thunder that, Mountain that Railroad show says enough yeah <laughs> um but yeah um yes I will watch Bowser Galactica someday it sounds so up my alley oh, yeah yeah look look forward to talking BSG to you coming sometime in I don't know 2049 or whenever we get through this yeah <laughs> Good. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. And I think we can probably tie things off there. Uh, Joe, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Any Twitter handles? Anything you'd like to mention? Um, yeah, like, I don't have anything to plug. You know, I just, you know, I'm just some dude. Uh, I got nothing else. Um, I my Twitter handle is at JSD Tweets. Um, uh, although I'm locked, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not really accepting any new people right now on the list. I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty set with my uh, with my friend group on there right now. But you know, feel free to follow me um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, witness my very interesting and mundane uh, tweets mm-hmm. about being um, a dad and watching Star Trek. <laughs> um, basically, that's what you'll get there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's about all. Thank you all for, for having me on here. This was, uh, this was a really, really good time. I genuinely enjoyed this. Of course. This was great. Um, yeah, you can find us at Trek to you on Twitter. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And please remember to like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Please note that Twitter is a thing at time of recording, but whether it is by time of broadcast, <laughs> yeah. well, that's really, really down to Elon Musk, I'm afraid. Anyway, we can tear things off for now. Next week, we are going to be encountering a big flimsy god, which means we are going to be covering the Squire of Gothos. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.